Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and undercover leather daddy. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I always I'm had my going undercover as a leather daddy. I can't wait for so many Al Pacino impressions coming oh, up in this episode. This crime, and you gotta solve the crime, and then we put the perpetrator in jail. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, so why are we doing that? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1980, and we're here at our future cult classic episode to cover a film that was quite controversial in its time and, and maybe remains so, but not, not as much. I mean, its cult following has built up in a positive way, as we'll talk about, and that film is William Friedkin's Cruising, starring Al Pacino as a cop who goes undercover in the gay leather S&M scene in New York City in order to catch a potential serial killer who has murdered multiple gay men within that scene. And it, it's a movie that a lot of people were not happy about at the time that it was being made. And probably there's a good group still not happy about it. But, um, you know, Josh, this is one of those movies like when we were planning this season, we all knew, you know, this is one of those movies that for years and years, you know about. And then none of us had ever seen it before. And we finally got around to it. But it, it's interesting because. Uh, like I said, it's like it's always there in the ether for film fans. Yeah, I mean, and when we were planning this season and I think we had a number of options for this, my feeling was like we have to talk about cruising because it's uh, it's got such a history of controversy and it's also had such an evolution. You know, when we talk about cult classics, part of the idea is the way that the viewpoint has changed on the movie over the years. And, and I think a lot of the people or at least the kinds of people who are unhappy about this film being made, even within that community, a lot of the perspective has changed. And, and later in the episode, we are going to talk to a gay film critic, a friend of ours, Mike Pravat, who will offer some of that perspective. But first, we can have our clueless straight perspective, because that's what you come to Awesome Movie Year for. I'm so dumb and straight and white. Yeah, well... <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> Cruising, uh, as we said, was very controversial. Uh, it was based on a 1970 novel by uh, Gerald Walker and also then partially William Friedkin, who also wrote the screenplay in addition to directing, uh, added some elements that were not in the novel that he was inspired in part by some actual killings that occurred in the New York City gay scene after the novel was published. So sort of a mix of fictional inspirations and real life inspirations there. Yeah. So uh, Arthur Bell had written a bunch of articles on those killings in the village voice. And uh, there's of course this incredibly insane story about Paul Bateson. Did you read about that? Yeah. Paul Bateson, who was an actor in the exorcist and then was later convicted of murder. And I love this about William Friedman. He's like, you know what? I know this guy I used to work with who's a murderer. So I'm going to have him be a consultant on my murder movie. <laughs> and he was convicted of murdering a film journalist, but there is speculation that he was also one of the killers of these gay men at this time. 
Right. And those crimes, those real life crimes were never solved. And Bateson was never convicted of those, although he was convicted of that other murder. So uh, which happened before this movie, like he was convicted of murder before this movie was made. And Friedkin was like, you know what? Let's see what he has to say about this. And I, I kind of have to give him respect for that. Go to the source. <laughs> I know this murderer. Jason, if you were friends with a murderer, would you give him a consultant credit on your film? Uh, Josh, I would have to go down my list of friends, but I bet you there's a murderer in there somewhere. <laughs> Good to know. I'll never meet any of those people. Anyway, so cruising, I mean, despite all of these protests, Arthur Bell, the journalist that you mentioned, was sort of a leading force in protesting this film with his uh, articles that he wrote in The Village Voice, objecting to the potential content of this film. And he rallied a lot of people in the gay community in New York City to go where the the film was being shot and to attempt to disrupt it by making noise and things like that. So it would be more difficult to film the movie. On the other hand, Friedkin, I think, and other people have said that actually a lot of people in the gay community were supportive. They shot at actual gay clubs. Mo many of the extras were people who were patrons of those clubs and were happy to participate. So even at the time, I think there's sort of a mixed response to whether this is a movie that the community wants to support or not. It's strange to me because Friedkin directed The Boys in the Band. Have you ever seen that film? I have not, but I am familiar with it. I mean, it's based on a play. There was a remake of it, I think, fairly recently, I yeah, would say. I think you're right. One of the earliest plays and then one of the earliest movies to, to depict gay life. Yeah, so this whole protest against Friedkin and... I think Mike will get more into it about kind of but the atmosphere around it. But Friedkin did have a, um, you know, a track record of treating material like this with its due respect and, you know, trying to make it uh, as a piece of art as opposed to just something controversial. Right. And I honestly, I mean, we'll talk about this more, but I think that's what he's aiming to do here. I don't think Friedkin is one of these filmmakers who's like a provocateur and just decided oh, I'm going to make this movie so that it can be controversial and push people's buttons and whatever. I really don't think that that's what he's aiming to do here. And I think that he's been vindicated in a lot of ways over the years. But certainly at the time, there were a lot of objections. On the other hand, when the movie finally did come out after also having to cut uh, 40 minutes of footage in order to get an R rating footage that Friedkin has said, is basically all explicit sexual content that takes place in these clubs. We'll never really know for sure because that footage has been lost and he's never been any really more specific about what it is. Uh, but when it was released with this R rating, it did gross $19.8 million on its budget of $11 million. So it wasn't a giant failure, even though it wasn't a big success either. And Josh, uh, some of those cuts, not just of the sex, but of Pacino's character watching that. So, you know, maybe it added some layers of depth there because um you know as we'll get into the ending is uh androgynous or un uh that's not the word i'm looking for no Josh. that's not the word at all it's ambiguous is maybe ambiguous the word for. there are androgynous characters in this film but yes, yes the ending sure. is ambiguous is what i meant to say 50 recuts to get it to an r josh yeah that's it's it's crazy and and yet you know it's still even now we you know we think of movies i think a lot of times we look back on movies you know, from 1980 or from these past years that were, you know, rated in that way. And we think, oh, this seems so tame from our perspective. But this movie really doesn't seem particularly tame, I think, from our perspective. I now. know. When I saw that, you know, he, you know, he had to leave stuff out. I was like, I thought it was pr pretty explicit as it was. 
Um, and, you know, per- portrayed a very specific subculture, which is the point of it. Freakin said of those cuts, it has mysterious twists and turns, which the film no longer takes. Right. So whether that would have clarified the plot or not, which was something that as much as the controversy, critics, I think, really focused at the time on the ambiguity of the plot that that they did not care for. And it was nominated for we've talked a lot weirdly about the Razzies this season. Many movies that we've talked about this season ended up Razzie nominated at the. Well, wasn't this the first Razzies? Isn't that what you said? Yes, it was the first ever Razzies. But I mean, I feel like we often end up talking about that when we do our flop episode. But this is I was I want to say this is at least the third movie that we've talked yeah, about this season. Fourth. Yeah, possibly yeah. even the fourth that was nominated for, for Razzies. It was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Director, and Worst Screenplay at the Razzies. And it was basically torn apart by critics. I, I didn't really find any mainstream critics who liked this movie. It got two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert, and Siskel was especially harsh about it. And they really... Again, far more than the controversy, I think, from mainstream critics, they focused on the idea that it was too ambiguous, that they didn't understand the plot, that there wasn't a clear answer about who is the killer and why, and that they didn't understand Pacino's character. They wanted everything to be more explicit, not sexually, but narratively. And I I feel like that's kind of a misguided. Uh, I think so. I think that's totally off base. And you wouldn't expect that from film critics who have this breadth of knowledge from throughout film history. I almost wonder if it's just that they were so unaccustomed to this subculture that we're talking about that they couldn't, you know, figure it out because it's uh, it was such a foreign thing to them. But I don't I don't get it, man. I thought that was part of the strength, the the ambiguity, Josh. Um, Also, Josh, you mentioned the the Golden Raspberries. Don't forget the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, most intrusive musical score nomination, which, again, uh, I'm a big fan of all the music in this one. I want to win that award one day. (laughs) I don't think that I don't think the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards exist anymore, sadly, for sadly for Dave, whose ambition is to win one of those. Jumping Um, back to the uh, raspberry, like, okay, you don't like the movie. You don't like the screenplay, but. Are you going to say it's poorly directed? Like, come on, dude. Yeah, I think this movie is very well directed, actually. Very stylish, very well paced. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted it to be 40 minutes longer because I feel like the pacing is exactly the way that it should be. So certainly disagree. But as we've talked about the Razzies many, many times, and it seems like evident even from the first time that a lot of what they do is they just grab onto something that has a pop culture reputation of being a disaster, and then they nominate it for all their awards. And that's just kind of how they do things. So. Roger Ebert, in his written review, said, there is a large, loud question right at the center of cruising. And because the movie lacks the courage to answer it, what could have been a powerful film dissipates its force and leaves us feeling merely confused and annoyed. The question is, how does the hero of this film, an undercover New York policeman, ultimately really feel about the world of homosexual sadomasochistic sex he is assigned to infiltrate? Here's a movie that's well-visualized, that does a riveting job of exploring an authentic subculture that has a fairly high level of genuine suspense from beginning to end, and that then seems to make a conscious decision not to declare itself on its central subject. What does Friedkin finally think his movie is about? Again, we've already said, I think that's, uh, in a way, no pun intended, a cop-out, because this (laughs) movie's about cops there, Josh. But also, like... 
I get it. You want clarity of character and stuff like that. But so many movies leave you asking questions that in a good way. And this is one of them. And this character is entering a world that he doesn't know. And he's having to deal with all of this, the new situations, new feelings, new emotions, whatever it is. So maybe he doesn't have that clarity to answer the question. Right. And again, as I think, as you said, I'm sure Ebert has seen many movies with narrative ambiguity that he praised. And so I don't understand why he can't wrap his head around this. I need to know how you feel about gay people right now. (laughs) Right. And it's, and again, it's not just him. Uh, He was, he was kinder to the film than Siskel. Siskel was just completely dismissed it. But a lot of the critics really talk about the same kind of thing. So uh, Frank Rich in Time Magazine said, is the uproar justified? Not entirely. True, Friedkin is up to his usual grisly tricks. The killings are gruesome, and the simulation of S&M couplings will appall many moviegoers of all sexual persuasions. Yet cruising is not anti-gay, any more than a film like American Gigolo is anti-heterosexual. Friedkin repeatedly, even tediously, reminds the audience that the S&M crowd is but a small, atypical subculture within a diverse homosexual world. The real problem with cruising is Friedkin's inability to deliver what should have been a brilliant thriller about sex and death. This film muffles a potentially explosive premise. Though cruising may go too far for some audiences as it is, it fails as a film by refusing to go far enough. And again, I think he just doesn't get it or doesn't, he wants his hand held the whole time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, how would that work, Josh? You, you, you write movie reviews. How would that work? How, uh, what is the ending they want? They want him to just say, like, here's what I think now that I've been to all these clubs, right? Is that what right. they want? I think uh, they want Foghorn Leghorn in the movie. I think yeah, I mean, you know, that's not that. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes he, sometimes he's over here. <laughs> but I mean, you know uh, what I'm saying? It's like, yes. Yeah, I don't I don't know, man. Especially and you're talking about Friedkin and Pacino. It's not like Pacino was taking risks around like all through this time, the 70s through 80s. Like, you know, I, I don't think these are the guys you hire to make it a play it safe paint by numbers movie. Right. I guess what they want is like a pr- police procedural that tells you exactly who the killer is, why they did it, how they did it walks you through all the evidence, and then, yeah, maybe has Pacino's character at the end, you know, give a speech to his girlfriend saying, you know, this is what I learned from this experience. And But that's crazy because I guarantee you that's not what film critics, even in 1980, wanted out of films. Well, right. That's what I think is so so wild. And also that you had a chance to do Pacino and you just totally avoided it. That was a real bummer. I am not. I <laughs> See, I know, uh, as I think we talked about, is it what is it, our last episode or two episodes ago when I was talking about Woody Allen? I know when to not attempt any of these things because I, I will fail. But it's so, I think you're right, Josh, that like they're going against stuff that they've rallied for probably in other movies. And that's what is mind boggling to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And and it's it's across the board. It's not just one person. It wasn't just Siskel or Ebert or whatever. It's it's really across the board, including Charles Champlin in the L.A. Times, who said the movie, which Friedkin wrote himself, freely adapting a 1970 novel of the same name by Gerald Walker, arrives amid such outrage and controversy that it will probably be difficult for anyone, gay or straight, to view it coolly on its own terms as a movie. 
no one is likely to find the contents anything but gamey, sordid, shocking, and profoundly depressing. The problem is in a script that never seems sure enough what it wants to say or prove. What it is, is baffling, vague, and deliberately misleading about its own contents. And with so little real perception provided, cruising lends itself to the charge of voyeurism that the homosexual community brings against it. It is at that point that the community anger and the film's aesthetic shortcomings and critical disappointments are joined. Do you think there's any chance that these critics were kind of uh, playing it safe because they saw the gay community revolting against the, this movie and so they didn't want to anger, you know, that community? I, I, I can't figure it out either. I mean, I, I would I, guess not in 1980. Right. I was going to say that as well, that in 1980, angering the gay community was probably not something that most people worried about. They weren't worried about yeah. it. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, like this is what a decade and change after uh, Stonewall. Right. And then, you know, we know the AIDS epidemic um, was hitting and the first cases of with a name, you know, AIDS and HIV was around this time. And there were these real killings and obviously homophobia. So there's all these combustible elements. But I, I just think. I don't think he did anything maliciously or even on screen that portrayed this as a malicious um, kind of hit job on that, that community. No, no, not at all. And I mean, I think to, to give these people credit, maybe in the mainstream of society, offending the gay community was not a, a thing that people con were concerned about in 1980. But among media elites and uh, open-minded liberals, as I'm sure these people were, I, I would imagine they were more conscious of being sensitive. And it is possible that they were right. concerned about that, especially given the vitriol that had been directed against the movie. Maybe they didn't want to feel that vitriol directed against them. Maybe mm, so. Sure. I mean, this even had like a, a warning on the theatrical version. The version we saw didn't have the warning. I didn't. Right. Did yours? No, no, I watched it on DVD and it did not uh, it did not have that. But it was basically a warning saying, hey, we're not portraying an entire community, just a subculture, a very specific sect. Right. You know, and Pacino said it's just a fragment of the gay community, the same way the mafia is a fragment of Italian-American life. Right, right. And even without that disclaimer, I mean, there's moments in the movie that Paul Sorvino's character, the the captain who assigns. Steve to this this case specifically says this isn't mainstream gay life. This is another thing. So even the characters are are telling us that uh, that aspect. So um, and that whole example about Italians and the Godfather is actually something that Gene Siskel brings up on that Siskel and Ebert segment. And he also, I mean, to go back to what we were saying before, like in that segment, Gene Siskel basically says like if if homosexuals object to this, that's their business. Like, I don't care. I mean, he doesn't say I don't care, but he essentially says I don't care. That all he cares about is whether the movie works as a movie and he thinks that it doesn't. Yeah, we were, some of the things we read is that um, some of the protesters were like pointing mirrors from rooftops to, to mess up the light, blasting whistles and air horns and playing music and just trying to shut down the production before it even, you know, got off the ground. Right. And they did supposedly have to use a lot of ADR because a lot of the sound uh, on location was unusable. Although I feel like it comes off. I, it didn't it didn't bother me or it didn't seem like it was awkward or anything like that. So as we've said, we, we none of us had seen this movie before, but had been curious about it. So we got the chance to see it for the first time here. And uh, anything else you want to offer on the, uh, the background, Jason? First movie to ever shoot in a uh, city morgue. Oh, that's weird. 
Yeah. Huh. And uh, Ed O'Neill of course, the name of a, a gay club. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why not? So you know, it's uh, could be. Ed, oh, uh, is Ed O'Neill's first film? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of fun. So yeah, it was a precursor of Al Bundy and Dutch. And uh, yeah. Josh, you had mentioned um, how he used Paul Bateson as a consultant, also uh, Randy Jurgensen and Sonny Grosso, who were uh, detectives, uh, were film consultants and had long successful careers. So like, I feel like this dude is really trying to do good work here you know maybe now you would have a consultant obviously from the community which you're portraying but i think he said like he went to uh the clubs pacino went to these clubs and like you know i'm sure they i mean he did talk to some gay authors and everything like that so i don't know man yeah i think he's making an effort and even if he didn't have someone specifically as a consultant from that community the fact that he shot in those clubs with real patrons of those clubs I mean, that gives that authenticity. I'm sure for background action, he just told them, hey, you know, do what you would do if you were at this club normally. And that that gives it that level of authenticity. Let's ramrod. <laughs> uh, or we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on cruising. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season. On the films of 1980, we are talking about our future cult classic pick, William Friedkin's Cruising. And in a little bit, we will be talking to our friend, Mike Pravat, a gay film critic and a Las Vegas media fixture, who will offer us uh, some additional perspective. But first, we're going to give our thoughts on this film. And I mean, I think what's good, you never know with these cult movies, but we all liked this movie. I think that's good that, that you know, coming to it, we were we all really appreciated what Friedkin is, is attempting to do here. Right. And it does in some ways harken back to like French connection. He's really able to build tension and kind of set a mood. And he's a master of those like kind of cops finding, you know, and solving the mystery, you know. So I think some of that some of that was all great. Obviously, Pacino at this point in time really didn't miss at all. I don't think in, in any film, you know, around this point in time. And uh, as you know, uh, I thought the soundtrack just really, really set a great um, uh, atmosphere, mood, whatever you want to call it, but really enhanced what we were going for. Yeah, that that all of that kind of punk or proto new wave music that they use really gives you that sense of being in the New York underground in a way that, uh, you know, a more traditional score would definitely not do that. Yeah, but it's all very dude, you know, masculine, you know, kind of, uh, it even gets into a sub, a sub or subsect than that, Josh. Right. And I think interestingly, also another thing that a lot of reviewers complained about was that Pacino was like too masculine. And I think these reviewers seem to have a very limited understanding that gay people could not be masculine, gay men could not be masculine or, or butch or whatever. And they can't wrap their head around somebody who might have gay feelings and is not like, you know, effeminate or whatever. So really a very limited understanding. Yeah. Uh, again, 1980, obviously, I think <laughs> we've all come a long way, hopefully, as people since then. Um, but what's more surprising is that William Friedkin, trash Pacino's performance in a lot of the research I uncovered. Oh. You know, he, he said he, he was unprofessional. He didn't bring any ideas to the whole thing. It was very strange. It just seems like he didn't like it. And then, you know, now watching it, he's like, he, he says now he can see the good in Pacino's performance. But there was um, 
you know, one scene where he fights James Remar's character, the neighbor's like boyfriend. And he said, that's the only scene where I let Pacino cut loose and do a Pacino. But like, you know, Pacino was a lot of he wasn't just all like uh, pomp and circumstance, especially in the 70s and 80s. You know, there was a lot of building to his characters. Right. And I think it's refreshing now since we've endured so many years of cartoonish Pacino to go back to these early roles and see how much nuance and subtlety he used to be able to bring to his performances. I like seeing him in his his subdued sort of mode. And I think that works really well in this film. And I think you can maybe uh, separate Friedkin's complaints of like onset behavior and not being professional and not being collaborative with the results that are on screen, which even Friedkin, like you said, can acknowledge that are, are good. I think Pacino is good in this movie and I think he contributes a lot like maybe it doesn't give you every single explicit character beat like some of these critics wanted, but I think you get a sense of this guy and a lot of the the sense of his uncertainty as he goes into this world and is sort of figuring himself out in the process. So I like Pacino's performance and the fact that he doesn't cut loose except in that one scene gives you a real, it makes an impact. You're like, oh wow, he really is angry about this. He really cares about this because he's going so harsh where he isn't in any other moment. You know, Josh, the other thing is like all of his, the character and what he discovers is motivated by his dedication to the assignment, to the work. And I thought that, you know, you keep, you keep seeing that in different ways. And, you know, whether it's when he gets upset about the treatment of uh, a suspect that they basically just beat up because he's gay and they want a confession or before that, when he wants that guy to tie him up. And, you know, it's just, uh, again, I think it's a, a pretty, pretty damn good performance. I don't know what the complaints would be. Right. I, I agree that is, it is a quite a good performance and that part of the movie's even handed depiction of the gay community comes from his performance, that he doesn't spend the movie seeming like a guy who is afraid of gay people or hates gay people or thinks they're crazy freaks or whatever, he's always open to like, I'm going to do what's necessary to solve this crime. And these people deserve justice just like anyone else does. And maybe it shows him some things about himself that he's not entirely comfortable with, but that's on him and not on those other people. So Josh, Richard Gere was Friedkin's first choice, who obviously was playing a lot of these kind of uh, sexually explorative parts around this time. Uh, De Niro, Jeff Bridges, Roy Scheider, Timothy Bottoms were the other names I read. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, some of those could have been good. I feel like Richard Gere could have been good, but but Pacino Jeff Bridges would have really been well. interesting. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if De Niro could have. Uh, he probably wouldn't have been right for this. I mean, you know, but in one way, you know, the fact that there is such a machismo to Pacino and that that kind of masculinity is similar to De Niro, especially at this time, like there, that really kind of uh, worked for the character. Yeah, I do think, you know, contrary to what those critics are saying, I think having the machismo and the masculinity in the character is good. And that someone like Jeff Bridges or Richard Gere, who are a little more androgynous, to use the word correctly, yeah. uh, might not have fit. Josh, you did not use that word ambiguously at all, did you? No, man. The uh, vocabulary. You know, and then from a directing standpoint, Brian De Palma was once attached, which makes sense. But the one that was surprising was Steven Spielberg was trying to develop this movie in the 70s. And uh, that would have been a whimsical take on a mass uh, killer of a subsect, huh? 
Yeah, I don't think Spielberg would have been right for this. De Palma could have done something interesting. And there are some scenes, especially like the first murder scene with the like flashes of the knife stabbing and like close ups that felt very De Palma-esque to me. Um, and there's also a clear like giallo influence, Italian horror movies and that kind of stuff. And the ambiguity of the ending and the general ambiguity of like who is the killer and is the killer like society is very giallo-esque. And I think, I don't know, again, maybe that's something that, that these critics just didn't know or notice at the time in 1980. Well, they wanted answers, but it seems like Friedkin had a clear vision of the questions that he wanted answered and didn't want answered. Right. And I think also, I mean, not to just jump to the ending again, which we'll talk about again later, but I think if you are so determined for there to be an answer, you can easily just accept the answer that's given at one point in the movie. Here's the killer. We see flashbacks of him targeting people. We have a reason because, you know, he's gay, but his father didn't approve and he's sort of torn about that. And you can just accept that if that's what you want and have the rest of the stuff be just sort of atmosphere. But I guess that wasn't good enough. Did you have an answer or were you happy leaving it ambiguous? I'm happy to leave it ambiguous. I mean, I do like that. And I didn't feel like it was so frustrating because again, there's an answer there if you want it. I didn't feel like it was just nothing. You know, like for example, to pick a movie that we talked about a couple seasons ago that's very ambiguous and artsy and that sets up a mystery and then just kind of throws its hands up uh, in, in blow up, you know, where I think that was a frustrating thing for all of us as viewers, because it doesn't even attempt it. I think here it's a good balance because you get an answer, you can take that answer, but you can also ponder the idea that maybe that answer isn't as definitive as the characters want it to be. Dave, any, uh, anything here, Dave, I'm going to jump in, Dave, Dave, you got something for us? Dave? <laughs> I'll just throw in that ambiguity is great because specifically about the way Al Pacino is playing this. I mean, you know, this character going into this world and not really knowing how it's affecting him 100%, you know, should leave everything in the dark. So it's it's kind of perfect, I think. Right. And you can read that that final shot of him. I think some people read it as a hint that he could be the killer, but I don't think it has to be that far. You can just read it as like, Here's a guy who went through this very intense experience that he's still processing and doesn't quite understand how it affected him. Yeah, and that's that's what I took from it. But um, you know, I'm just a dumb straight white guy. Right. <laughs> you you sure are, Jason. <laughs> so, um, Josh, should we just come back now and let our smarter friend Mike Pravat jump in here? Well, I think maybe first you want to rate the movie before we get to that. Uh, sure. Give it a rating out of uh, five uh, five ramrods. Sure, let's do it. I was going to say those bandanas that you hang out of your pocket. Yeah, Ramrod is the name of a bar here. Also, an incredible Bruce Springsteen song, as you both know. Oh, my um, goodness. We got a Springsteen reference in there. Uh, yeah, Dave, we could rate it out of those bandanas. I was amazed at the complexity of the bandana system and wondered yeah. if that was like all real because you really had to have like a chart to make sure that you knew which bandana, which side it was on because the same color on a different side could mean right. something different. And I assume that was real. But to me, I was just like, man, this would be a lot to keep track of. That seemed real. I heard heard of I, this wasn't the first time I've heard that before. So I think right. it is no, real. same here. Yeah. I think you're right. But it just right. was it was a little much. So uh, five colored five bandanas. No, All Jason, right. well, you, you love the ramrod. So let's do the ramrods. <laughs> All right, Josh, I give it three and a half ramrods, three ramrods and a ram because 
I think it's a really effective uh, film with excellent performance and music, and um, it's worth seeking out this one. Yeah, I agree. I also give it three and a half ramrods, and I think it's got great atmosphere, solid performance, and it is suspenseful, as even Roger Ebert acknowledges there in his somewhat negative review. So, you know, some aspects are outdated, but I feel like not as many as other movies that are not about such a controversial subject that we talk about from the movie, right so. and more and more modern too. So, you know, right. um, yeah. Hey Josh, if your half is a rod, then we have one more full ramrod. I don't even <laughs> want to go there. So Dave, how do you want to rate this? Uh, I'll go up to four for me. All right. uh, yeah, no, this movie is a total vibe. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it really does. It has that vibe. The atmosphere is really, is really effective. It really, draws you into that world, which I think is important because it's drawing the main character into that world as well. Exactly. So we will come back and talk to Mike Pravat, who will give us some more insights on cruising. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about our future cult classic pick, William Friedkin's Cruising. And we are happy to be joined by a guest here. We are talking to Mike Pravat, who is a producer at KMPR here in Las Vegas, as well as a former film critic, I guess we would say, for Las Vegas City Life, uh, and my former coworker from Las Vegas Weekly. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, and he's edited a lot of my work over uh, some years as well. That's right. Yeah, we've all worked together various uh, periods of time. So we're happy to have Mike offer a perspective uh, beyond our uh, privileged perches, I guess you could say, well, that Jason and I are on. Yes. We thought it was important to have a gay perspective, you know, someone of the community. You know, Josh and I are just two white dudes who are living the high life, you know, because we're straight white guys, Mike. We needed some help here. Thank happy you for help. clarifying that, Jason. <laughs> Mike looks happy. So, so Mike, I know this is actually a movie that you hadn't seen. You said you right. watched this for the sake of talking to us. But what was your impression of it? Like, how did you first hear about it? And what was your awareness of this movie prior to this? I've known about the movie for a long time. Uh, it was just one of any number of movies that any of us have that they sort of languish at the bottom of our, you know, our streaming cues, or we just, you know, don't prioritize it. In fact, I think it was on Criterion not too long ago. And I think I had it in the queue and then it, you know, they took it off. So this was a good excuse to see it. Um, it I don't know. I think I have not really dug deep into the gay films of the early eighties or the seventies the for whatever reason. Um, the only one I can think of off the top of my head that I've seen was another Al Pacino movie, which was Dog Day Afternoon. And so I, you know, this was, uh, I was sort of due to see it. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about its backstory, you know, so I wasn't deterred based on, you know, what I had now, what I've now recently heard about it or read about it. And my impressions of it were that, you know, I liked the movie generally. I like Friedkin. I love The Exorcist. Um, he did French Connection, right? Yes. Yeah, so both of those are great movies. And I, watching it, I could get the sense that he was the filmmaker. I definitely saw the stylistic overlap. And, you know, I had a lot of different 
you know, thoughts going through it, you know, how it might have been perceived at the time, how I was perceiving it. Uh, I felt moments of, you know, tension during those tense scenes where you didn't know what was going to happen. The, it, the ending was a bit intriguing. I had to kind of think about it for a bit and then I read about it to see if my thoughts matched what other people, you know, thought about in terms of the ending. So I thought it was, you know, possibly a movie that I could even return to, you know, just to see what I missed the first time around, which is always a good sign when I'm watching a movie at the end being like, oh, I'm going to have to see that at some point again. Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't something that you remember people telling you, I don't know, maybe like to stay away from, or this is not something that you want to subject yourself to or anything like that. No. In fact, I know they talk about it in the book, The Celluloid Closet, which explores LGBT movies. And I have still not read that book. That would have been my only exposure to, hey, this film had, an, at least at the time, had a negative reception. But I'm glad I did not know that. And now that I've seen it and I've read how it was negatively received, its negative reception happened before the movie even came out. And right. that was sort of interesting. I mean, I understand the, the, how should we put it, the gut reaction to knowing that something like this was coming out. You know, this is right when uh, AIDS had popped up. And, you know, on top of all the other stigma that gay people were experiencing, we had then this to make us look even worse. And for a movie to sort of glorify how gay people sought out sex and then how, you know, there were murderers among our tribe on top of it. I could see why it was definitely not a good look. But, you know, now that we've, we're, what, 42 years on, you know, we can definitely look at it at a different lens. You know, I think that me finally watching it now as opposed to earlier, I, you know, I got to benefit from that. It seems like we all liked it. Um, you felt the same way, Mike? Yeah, I did. Was there anything in it as you were watching it now that you felt like, oh, this is potentially harmful or offensive? Or do you feel like a lot of that has really faded? I mean, I think a lot of that has faded. Um, I will say this, you know, there's that first scene where he finally walks into a gay club after he takes the assignment. And, you know, you're getting quite an eyeful of yes you know the realities of a leather bar i mean you walk into the garage near unlv here in las vegas and it's a pretty benign site but if you you know go i don't we actually we have some semblance of a leather bar here uh the fun hog ranch and it might be a little edgier compared to say the garage it's still nothing like what you see in cruising but you know, sites like that, that, you know, they exist uh, in certain cities and certain, certain parties. And even me as a 46-year-old man who has been out of the closet since he was 22, 23 years old, I will still walk into a bar or party like that. And I might still go, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I can only imagine what straight people who know nothing about that culture or have never seen anything like that would see. It does, you do get the feeling that like, Friedkin and the producers were like, let's give them a look at what happened. And so there's a little bit of a sensationalistic um, gaze and, and projection in the movie that, you know, might be a little cynical, but it is, it is 
truthful. You know, there's nothing I haven't seen in that movie. And I, from what I understand, it's the more neutered version of what they originally wanted. You know, I was, I was queasy in so far that maybe I wasn't expecting it to be as accurate or in some cases as graphic. I think just my anticipation of like, oh, this is a movie in 1980, you know, how much are they really going to show? And then being like, oh, okay, we're going there. (laughs) So um, that was, I think, my level of surprise. I don't think anything seemed offensive. I mean, it was disturbing to see the cops give gay guys a hard time. But, you know, in 1970s New York, that happened, too. So, you know, it's more like, here's what happened. Unfortunately, we're showing this now to straight people. You know, from there, what happens when the audience receives it? Who knows? Again, I understand the sensitivities of it, but this was a much bigger issue. And I don't know if you guys have discussed this in, at any point in, in the podcast, but, you know, in 1991 and 1992, we had two monstrously huge movies that had gay serial killers in them. Silence of the Lambs and Basic Instinct. And those had a bigger media reach in terms of controversy and those were definitely more sensitive times for the lgbt community because we were in the peak of aids and you know we were you know much more aware of how gay people were being uh, discriminated against and what we didn't have compared to straight people and you know the whole thing was blown much bigger and in this movie in comparison i think even if you're dealing with a subculture and you're dealing with something that was a true story compared to these, uh, I know basic instinct was fictional. I don't remember if silence of the lambs had any basis in, in, I think is this is based on a novel, maybe partially inspired by a true story, but I don't know, like specifically true necessarily. Right. Right. Are you talking about cruising or are you talking about cruising? Silence? Yeah. 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 I, there, there was a journalist. I think he worked for the village voice and there was, there was some, some basis in it. Right. But heavily fictionalized and, and, Right. If those other movies are inspired by true stories, it's probably the same deal. That's it's sort of a jumping off point. Sure, sure. Probably even more so. Hey, Mike, you mentioned Dog Day Afternoon, which is another great movie. Is there a because, you know, when you think of like, you know, maybe icons or actors that are revered in the gay community, you don't really hear like Al Pacino, but he was taking on these roles that would be risky for a mainstream leading man in the 70s and 1980 here can you talk a little about that yeah i mean there i have never really read anything that celebrated his bravery um when i was watching the movie i did finally think of that i I didn't think about it beforehand and then something triggered me and i was like oh yeah not only was he in dog day afternoon in 75 but then going forward was it 30 years later He's Roy Cohn in Angels in America, which obviously he's playing a pretty bad guy. I mean, just in terms of gay American history, one of the most evil people that the LGBT community have ever had to, had to deal with. But he is nonetheless playing a gay man. He's playing someone who's suffering from AIDS. He is dealing with a gay that, you know, he's dealing with other gay characters. And I'm not sure that there are any, I can't think of off the top of my head, another straight actor who has done that many gay roles. I just, 
I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, and, and especially Jason, as you're saying, I mean, it's maybe by the time he got around to playing Roy Cohn, it was more of a like, this is a, a way that straight actors get awards. But in the 70s and the early 80s, it was certainly uh, a lot bigger of a risk. Well, and you're talking about Dog Day where, you know, they're robbing a bank and, uh, you know, spoiler alert coming. It's to pay for uh, his uh, lover's transition. Right. You know, which is pretty uh, amazing back then. And then I thought cruising did a really good job. Like you said, the police took advantage of, you know, some of the gay characters. But like as far as like the Pacino character, like just straight down honest you know doing the work in a non-judgmental way yeah judgmental i think is something that we expect from depiction of gay culture in this era but but i kind of felt the same way as jason did about it did, did it seem that way to you also you know as far as pacino goes i was definitely cluing in on when he got the assignment from um the um paul Sorvino character and he just was kind of like yeah sure Let's do it, you know? Um, and he wasn't even that, you know, you can imagine that a heterosexual man in the late 70s, early 80s, when he's being asked, hey, have you ever had sex with a man? And Pacino's like, no. You know, he wasn't like, are you kidding? What are you talking about? Why are you asking this? Like, he doesn't have the yeah. overreaction you can imagine happening. So right. he, he's, it's weird because in the movie, he's oddly aloof the whole time. And you're like, you know, is this Pacino playing him as aloof? Is he being self-conscious? Is this what the role requires? Is this what a detective has to do when he's undercover? You know, he, he's, he's mostly aloof through the whole thing. But then there are times where like he kind of, he really gets into it. He puts the, the, the makeup in his eyebrows. He seems all too willing to have men, you know, come to the hotel room and tie him up. And, you know, there's all kinds of different, you know, there's kind of, the, his role with in terms of the projection of his sexuality, you could say at some points it's low and, ha, you know, the, he's lifting weights probably to seem more macho and being more aggressive with his girlfriend. And then there's other times where he's, you know, he's going for it and he doesn't have the self-consciousness while he's working. It seems like he really wants to solve the crime. He really wants to get ahead as a, as a, as a detective. And also he, the way he talks with the other gay characters he doesn't seem like he's really struggling to relate to them or speak to them. And I think it's a pretty measured performance and maybe what a role like that would require. Yeah. I want to go back to something else that you said that, you know, sort of to your knowledge, and I realize you were a child <laughs> during the time period when this takes place, but that, to your, you know, to your knowledge, to, to whatever degree you have, that there is accuracy in the depiction of this particular subculture. Uh, in this film. So do, do you feel that way? And I mean, I don't know how familiar you are particularly with it, if you want to go into that at all. Well, from what I know, I mean, for the most part, it nothing struck me as egregious. Like I said earlier, I have walked into leather bars before, and the artwork on the wall tends to be graphic. Uh, the flirting that happens, some of the things happening in the corners looks like they're things that, you know, maybe wouldn't happen in, you know, at PT's place. And, um, might make the, it more interesting though. Oh, if you go to PT's and catch some, <laughs> I would resubscribe for my, uh, PT's place membership. If that were the case, <laughs> your player's card. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, the scenes where the men dressed up 
they were androgynous or, or even uh, presenting as women. Their interactions, they didn't seem out of place. Um, the, 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 the costuming was right on. It just, it felt like someone had done their homework. I don't know if they were dealing with people who were gay or they were just very observant. I think there was a lot of, I think I read that they did some uh, intel and, and uh, research in some of the other gay bars where they weren't being kicked out. And it felt authentic, you know, from what I know. I was obviously, like you said, I wasn't in bars at that time, but even just what I know of bars today and even based on descriptions I have read in books from people who were of the time, like, uh, like I read a John Rishi book. He was a hustler around that time. And it seemed to be in concert with, with everything that I've read and that I knew. So Mike, you and I, I mean, you know, we all kind of got to know each other and I, you know, I know you used to do film reviews, but you and I mostly got to know each other on the music scene out here first, uh, writing for opposite, uh, weeklies, but then you edited a lot of my articles and I wanted to talk to you. I was really excited as I was watching this by the soundtrack and how effective it was. And I wanted you to, it was so macho and like just set such a mood. Uh, I wanted to just get your opinion on the soundtrack of this. thing. Yeah, I was, I was actually taken aback. You know, I, I, I did not know what the soundtrack of leather bars were in 19, you know, this, I think it depicts, I think it's not, it doesn't depict 1980 necessarily, but it's sometime in the seventies or late seventies. Yeah. Some slightly earlier. Yeah. Right. And you know, my assumption of a gay bar in New York city in the West village, uh, is probably going to be disco or the early the precursors to house or something, you know, more mainstream. And, you know, you go into those kind of bars now and you're not hearing the most alternative of music. But then it sounds like you were. And I actually like I it gave the movies, first of all, some energy, some different kind of energy. It wasn't dour, downbeat music. It was kind of it, it had an enervating feel to it, but it was also edgy. And I don't think I think I read that this is the first time the germs had ever had music in a movie before, which I'm sure you know, compared to now with, you know, licensing and everything, I'm sure back then that was, you know, not happening very often to, uh, to begin with. But I liked the fact that the music went in another direction. The, the more macho feel of the music, as you put it, um, definitely matches what vibe that those bars want to give off. There's this, there's this thing in the gay community, even to this day, where marketing people, they always prefer a more masculine form of advertising of marketing of projection because there's still the stigma with a more male effeminate representation and in those bars you really see that in play like they want manly men leather uh, denim levi and sometimes they'll call it a leather levi bar that usually plays into it uh, you have your harnesses things that definitely project something more manly and it sometimes it's a reaction to mainstream society. Sometimes it's a reaction to effeminate gay men. You can look at it a bunch of different ways, but the music definitely paired with what you know that culture is like. Do you want to talk about the ending, Mike? And you're you seem to have some some thoughts on it. It's uh, ambiguous slash potentially controversial. How did you interpret it? So, as I was watching it, I felt at first that okay. They've caught the killer. And then we look at the final murder 
with his his neighbor and then i was like oh there's more to the movie but i thought i only had five minutes left in the movie because i did look and see what was left i'm like they're gonna be some big reveal and then of course you get the final scene of him looking in the mirror as he's shaving and i was like oh have i been had and <laughs> i stopped it i went back and i watched the last 10 minutes again and i was like could could the the neighbor still have been murdered by the what I call the Lou Reed lookalike, who was actually the killer? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, maybe you know, Friedkin's having some fun with us, and that was still a murder done by the original killer. And then I listened to the commentary track of the last ten oh, minutes wow. on the DVD right. that I found. This guy, what a research machine! Yeah, dude, Las Vegas Public Library system. I will defend it to my death. It is, it is, it is top. I found it. I found a copy of it at Spring Mountain Library, and um, they had the commentary track of this disc. Art, this this DVD is discontinued. You can't buy it anywhere unless it's used. And Friedkin gives a very like he's basically walking you through the movie. He is not you doing what a lot of filmmakers do, which is kind of reflect and expound upon and and kind of really go into different aspects of what they were thinking during the movie. He kind of gives you the play by play more than the color. And he gives just enough color to make you even more confused or more uh, to make you think more openly about what happened. But then he also zeroes in on the cop. And Mm. the cop who's at the scene of the crime when the, the neighbor is killed, the cop who, of course, is in the cop car in the very beginning scene where they you know, to put it mildly, harass the two streetwalkers and is also in the gay bar in the middle of the movie. And then I'm like, you fucker. I was like, (laughs) that is now three people I've got to think about as to what happened. And I'm like, kind of a masterstroke. I kind of like, I like ambiguous endings. I will, you know, I'm a big defender of the final Sopranos episode. And I like, you know, I like, Movies that kind of make you think a little bit and, and, and give you almost like a, it almost treats it like a poem, you know, that you can interpret in a bunch of different ways. So, um, you know, that was smart. It, 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 you know, at first a little frustrating, but, you know, I caught on to it. Well, I think you got to add his lover in there too. Right. They, uh, the, oh, yes, the yes, yes. So right. four. Really. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about yes, him. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. a lot going on there. Can you uh, talk about, because we talked about, you know, kind of, what the backlash was before this came out. Can you talk about the reassessment of it and maybe where it stands today? So from what little I read on that, um, I see a bunch of pieces that have come out from people, including gay people, defending the movie. And, you know, first of all, a lot of time has passed. Um, It's easier to reassess these things. Um, Look, you know, birth of a nation will never get this kind of treatment as it should not. (laughs) But I think with a lot of other movies that seemed controversial at the time, sometimes time will pass and you realize that sometimes there are overreactions or sometimes it is just a product of circumstance. Again, super sensitive, vulnerable gay community in 1980, you know, we're hearing about gay cancer that gay men are passing, you know, and it's just one more thing for, you know, straight people who don't like gay people to attack us with. And we're just, you know, the community's like, you know, 
just one more thing we have to contend with. And so they're going to be super sensitive and I get it. You know, now HIV is a much different beast than it was in 1980, 1991, 92, even the year 2000. So I'm kind of glad the movie is getting reassessed. I mean, if this look, if this was some crappy gay movie, you know, it would make a difference, obviously. But because it is, I think, a quality film that was made pretty intelligently, pretty, from what I can tell, pretty carefully, you know, and they were very adamant at the time, like, look, this, we're not targeting the gay community. This is just, you know, based on, loosely based on something that happens. And if you want to tell the story and it's going to be unique, I mean, it's, look, I mean, this film definitely comes out of that 70s filmmaking tradition. I think it's the different lens that we are now afforded to look at it with that allows the reassessment, that allows us to kind of look at it at a more comfortable perch. Um, I think we're going to wrap up here, but do you have any final observations you want to share, Mike? What I wanted to ask you with that in mind, does it feel like a weight off your shoulder? Because you said, you know, you've always had it on your queue and, you know, it was in the drawer or whatever. And now you finally watched it, Mike. Does it feel good to be to have that uh, checked off the list? You know, I've never felt that sense of relief for a movie I finally got to, unless I was being harassed about watching it, finally. So not quite like that, but I will update my LGBTQ list on my letterbox with the movie now, Excellent. because uh, I am glad I saw it. Um, I will say this. Uh, the first thing real quick about Final Observations is I read that um, there were 40 minutes of the movie that they had to excise to get the R rating. And my first thought was, where is the special edition director's cut DVD? <laughs> right. And then I read the bad news that that's not coming anytime soon. So that's a bummer because I wonder what that footage reveals. I wonder if in that footage, does it redeem the film any further or does it perhaps stigmatize the film any further? I'm very curious about that. The second thing is in terms of demonizing gay people, Al Pacino himself had a very good quote that I that I saw somewhere on the on the internet that really puts this in perspective. And he said, "This film doesn't stigmatize the LGBT community any more than movies about the mafia stigmatize Italian Americans." Which you know, it's a it's a great quote, and it comes from a great source. And I think that really sort of signifies where that movie can stand. And frankly speaking, I have seen my fair share of gay movies made by gay filmmakers put out through gay studios that I sat through groaned and grimaced and thought these are the most <laughs> stereotypical, awful playing the stereotype movies I have ever seen that are far more offensive than anything I saw in cruising. <laughs> so that's my final right. thought on it. I'm really glad that we all kind of feel the same way. And that also, you know, this is one that's worth rediscovering if uh, you've heard of it or, if uh, maybe you've never heard of it, this is one worth seeking out. Yeah. yeah. So, Mike, thanks again for uh, for joining us. Do you have anything, uh, you know, you want to plug? Where can people see you on social media or check out your work? So most of my work right now resides at KMPR.org, where I work. Um, my Twitter account is Mike Pravat, uh, spelled just like my name is, wherever you're looking at it on your phone or, or computer. Yeah. That's it. Well, thank you again, Mike, for joining us. And uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk more about the legacy of cruising. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1980. We have been talking about our future cult classic pick, Cruising, and thank you again to Mike Pravat for all of his insights, hopefully uh, better than ours. But, you know, we, hey, we do our best. Mike Pravat coming with some hammers there, Josh. He's did a lot of research, put a lot of thought into it, and... Uh, it was his first time seeing this too. So pretty cool that we got to have that discussion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We do appreciate all that. Uh, you know, we try to do our research, but Mike, Mike went above and beyond there. So, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can put him in the awesome movie, your guest appearance hall of fame. Oh. <laughs> um, but, that's a very, um, even if we put all of our guests in there, it's still a very small. Hall right. Of fame. Yeah. That's, I think my implication there, every one of them is in there. All of the guests that we've had anyway, we are here talking about now the legacy of cruising. And, you know, we talked a bit about it with Mike and about the way that the movie has been reassessed in the gay community. And I think that's that's a really major part of it, that not that some people still don't dislike this movie or still find it offensive or harmful, but the number, it seems like, of people who feel that way has really dwindled and that there's gotten to be a lot more support from gay critics who would see it now. And I think that all, all critics and all film watchers, um, yeah. Friedkin says it could be found wanting as a film, but it no longer has to undergo the stigma of being an anti-gay screed, which it never was. Right. I mean, and I think the thing to, to, to you know, we've been, we've been sort of uh, harsh on those judgments, but I think one thing that I can kind of understand, and this goes to the passage of time, that now in 2022, we have, if not enough, certainly far more varied representations of gay life in films and in TV series. And in 1980, there were very few. And so if one of the only representations of the community is going to be this movie about this sort of freakish subculture that includes a serial killer, I can understand at that time for people saying, we don't want one of the only ways that mainstream society is aware of us to be this. And now that's not the case. And so it's different. Yeah, I guess. But that seems prejudice against us. Um a certain group within the group. Well, right. I mean, it, it, it is, I suppose, yes, that is true, that there's no reason to be judgmental about that S&M scene, the leather bars or whatever. I think maybe more so about the idea that it's about a gay serial killer right. who right. is, you know, acting out his own sort of internalized homophobia. Yeah, and I do think that might have been the weakest part of the film was the, you know, when we finally... Uh, see that uh, Stuart character and him having these flashbacks to his father and um, if they are kind of justifying his, not justifying, but giving you the motivation for his actions. I don't know. That one didn't feel as really well drawn as the rest of the, the film from a character standpoint. Yeah, I agree. And I think especially the gay person who acts out because of internalized homophobia has become sort of a cliche in in films and in tv series but it maybe you know it wasn't something that was as prevalent at this time but i agree with you uh about that on the other hand obviously that was what a lot of critics wanted was just a basic clear explanation of this even if it was dissatisfying josh it would have been um you know we've talked about 1977 and you know william friedkin one of the major figures of new hollywood one, uh, I mean, almost every Oscar, best picture, director, actor, screenplay and editing for the French Connection, I think in 71, got a DGA award of Golden Globes, some of the other movies, uh, The Exorcist, To Live and Die in L.A. Um, and then the last one, The Devil and Father of Morse. Did you ever see that, Josh? 
and that's a documentary uh, about uh, someone I think who was a consultant on The Exorcist. I want to say so. I never saw him that. going to perform exorcism. They film live these live exorcisms. Right. That was it. Was a very poorly reviewed film. Um, the last narrative film he made was Killer Joe in 2011, which I've also not seen and was very was kind of controversial for being very explicit. The most recent Friedkin film I've seen is Bug with uh, with Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon, which uh, I think is one of the movies that got an F cinema score. One of these movies that was very, very off putting to audiences. But I think it's a really fascinating film and has also been kind of reassessed and, uh, you know, appreciated in years since. And Josh, I will tell you, he directed the best Shaquille O'Neal movie, Blue Chips from the mid 90s. That's a good basketball movie there. I've not I've not seen Blue Chips or or To Live and Die in L.A., which is, you know, along with, I think, The French Connection and The Exorcist, one of his like major, major films. And uh, I'd like to check that out. I love me some French Connection, Josh. Yeah. And The Exorcist is great. I was lucky enough to get to see The Exorcist on a big screen one time in a theater. And that's a really cool uh, theatrical experience to have. And, and Friedkin is still I mean, he's he's in his 80s, but he's still around. And I, you know, he could very well come back and make something interesting. He seems like the kind of person who would continue pushing uh, his boundaries. Also in his 80s, Al Pacino, who's as busy as ever, you know, one of the most uh, celebrated and awarded actors of all time. As we mentioned, he won, he won the Oscar for Scent of a Woman, nine Oscar nods. He's got two movies in the works. He was in House of Gucci last year. Uh, Sniff sounds kind of um, not going to say the same, but of this uh, maybe could be it's a Taylor Hackford movie, so it's not going to be as moody, let's say. But uh, it's a retired detective is pulled back into action by his former partner and they uncover a hidden underworld of sex, drugs and murders in the wealthy community controlled by the kingpin Harvey Stride and his femme fatale enforcer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly not uh, giving a lot of credence to whatever Al Pacino chooses to do now. He's playing he's playing King Lear coming up. And, you know, we know he has a history of uh, uh, Shakespeare work and acclaimed Shakespeare work. Yeah. And I mean, even though he has become sort of a cartoon, he can still pull out some good performances, certainly. Uh, I mean, even, you know, later in his career, I, I guess it's, it's a long time ago now, but, you know, in the by the 90s, he was already kind of in this ridiculous mode. But I really like him in Donnie Brasco and in The Insider and even some of his crazy over the topness. Like I have a fondness for The Devil's Advocate, which could be like one of the most <laughs> absurd. God is an absentee landlord. Yeah. It's just over. <laughs> but it's a super fun movie. No, those that you mentioned, the speech in any given Sunday. I mean, more recently. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, The Irishman, he he kills both of those parts. He's great in them. So, you know, he's not doing what he used to do. But if this is, you know, who he is now, he's he's making it work as uh, in a, on a high level still. And he's certainly doing exactly what he wants. And ha I mean, he was like a meme recently because he was like walking down the street, dancing to his music on his was listening to on his headphones, just like having a great time being Al Pacino. Like what could be better than that, really? Yeah. And I would recommend watching Looking for Richard, his um, uh, somewhat oblique documentary on uh, Shakespeare and how to perform it. It's an interesting film. Uh, I don't really know what else to say about it. I don't think I understood it all, but I wouldn't give it a negative review like these bums did in 1980 to cruising. Uh, speaking of uh, somewhat oblique uh, artsy documentaries, James Franco <laughs> in uh, 2014 
made a film called Interior Leather Bar that ostensibly is his attempt to recreate what he imagines would be the missing 40 minutes of cruising. Now, he doesn't actually know what that is because, as we say, Friedkin's never specifically said the footage itself is lost. If it was in the script, people haven't seen that. And the movie, uh, which I did watch and and Dave somehow also endured, um, Mm -hmm. is despite the fact what struck me is like, despite the fact that that's theoretically the idea that James Franco and uh, Travis Matthews, who's the co-director, are trying to they're casting and shooting these scenes that are meant to recreate the uh, the the bits of cruising. There's like what five, ten, maybe minutes of that actual footage in the right. film, and the vast majority of the film is this sort of pseudo, possibly partially scripted documentary about the making of the movie and the concept of it, and why do it or why not do it. And it really mainly comes off like Franco and everyone involved don't know what the hell they're doing. The making It's a documentary about the making of interior leather bar, not the making of cruising. Right, exactly. Right. It's a documentary about the making of itself. And right. the idea of, no, that's really what it, I mean, you know, and it's one of these very uh, meta, uh, you know, self-reflexive. I think I saw someone on Letterboxd said uh, alternate title, interior James Franco's posterior. You know, it's very mm. much like I think a lot of James mm, Franco's mm, mm, mm. Uh, exactly. A lot of James Franco's directorial efforts is this like conceptual pretentious thing that's not a movie that you can enjoy watching. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean for a guy who was a mainstream star for a long time while he was a mainstream star to get those movies financed and made like Cool. Yeah, I mean, I respect the idea that he's doing, but the execution of it is almost entirely inept. Yeah, Josh and I were talking about it, and like the idea is sound, but then watching him attempt to even explain what he's trying to do to these guys that he hired, it's like he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, interesting. And his concept is, I'm James Franco, and I can do whatever I want. And that (laughs) seems the concept of a lot of his movies. Well, we I think we've spoken in our room episode. The height of him was uh, the disaster artist. But yeah, yeah. And he can be he can be a very entertaining actor. But I think as a sort of his own disaster artist, it's uh, it's a different story. Well, Josh, I mean, this film cruising is littered with excellent character actors. Paul Sorvino mostly known for Goodfellas, I think, as Polly in uh, Law & Order. Karen Allen, of course, uh, debuted in Animal House and will always be remembered for Indiana Jones. And James Remar, we talked about in The Cotton Club. Uh, check him out in The Warriors, and later he's uh, Sex in the City and Dexter. And Richard Cox, who plays that aforementioned Stuart Richards, has appeared in Looking for Richard and Wild Salome, another uh, uh, Pacino-directed film. No, I don't think I've seen any of uh, Pacino's directorial efforts, but yeah, a lot of good. Oh, watch my movies, man. <laughs> I did want to say another another uh, secondary character who we didn't really talk about much, but I really like the relationship that Pacino's character has with his neighbor when he sort of moves into this uh, the gay neighborhood and he has this neighbor who's an aspiring playwright who's not involved in the leather scene and is more the, quote, mainstream gay scene. And they really form this nice friendship. And that's, that uh, character is played by Don Scardino, who later went on to become a very prolific TV director. And Jason, someone that you know and have worked with, I think. Right? I haven't worked with him. His father 
was a was a pretty famous musician and you know my grandfather was a comedian for over 60 years and they'd always have a band with the comedian so his father played um often in my grandfather's backing band as far as i understand it and also you know was just a fan and uh supposedly i don't know don but um you know my grandfather had nothing but nice things to say about both don senior and don junior the scardinos also josh powers booth you talked about the uh bandanas powers right. Booth played the salesman there so yeah a lot of uh you know small parts for people who would go on to very long character acting careers uh showing up in this film so uh anything else you want to mention about the legacy of this film jason we say all. <laughs> thank goodness that we ended on that note so that is cruising and that is this episode of awesome movie year check us out on social media we're on social media i'm jason harris comedy or j harris comedy on all the socials my website go for jason should be arrested for inactivity because it's been so long since i did anything with it josh we're at awesomemovieyear.com awesome movie year on facebook and instagram awesome movie pod on twitter and thank you for all the feedback as always everyone yeah, we, we certainly appreciate it. Hopefully uh, people will have some uh, good things to say about Mike. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at Mike Pravat and check out his work on KNPR here in Las Vegas. You can check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And speaking of that Facebook group, we had some audience choice voting going on in that group. And so, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, it is the audience choice and it's 1980, a huge year for horror movies. So we let our listeners choose which one of these iconic horror films they wanted us to cover. And the winner is... The Fog. So tune in next time for The Fog, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.